You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. There was a, a drip in the bathroom, and we located the source. It was uh, first floor bathroom. So when Saturday rolled around and the waffles were done, I grabbed my pliers and I headed in. Now, I don't have a lot of experience with uh, plumbing, but I do own my own pliers, and I use plumbing all the time. So I thought, you know, how hard could this be? Just in case I needed a little assistance with this, um, I had a book, and, you know, my wife had given this to me. I thought it was a nice idea. Home Improvement 123, right? <laughs> what could go wrong? So uh, I opened up to the plumbing section here, page 134, and it's got you know, everything you would need. It's all laid out beautifully, it's colored pictures. It's, this says fixing shower problems. And there's a little diagram. The, the skill scale tells me that um, all I need would be four drips out of seven drips. And well, I got, you know, I got drips coming out of it. You know. And then mechanical, uh, it's only one wrench out of seven wrenches that you need. And they, and they tell me how long it should take, too. So you know, if I'm a beginner, it would take me about an hour. If I'm an intermediate, it's a little bar chart here. I'd be about 45 minutes. Uh, if I'm an expert, it should take about 30 minutes. So I'm thinking, I don't know if I need the whole half hour there or not, but um, this shouldn't be too much of a deal. Now, uh, I learned something uh, very important that day. So here's what you want to you know, take this home. Uh, if you're going to do your own plumbing project, you should always do it on a weekday. Because when they come to fix what you broke, uh, it's, they're going to charge you twice as much money. And I don't want to go through the whole story uh, with you, um, but the, when it was dinner time, uh, and I was still kneeling uh, in the tub with grease all over my clothes, with spray in my glasses, with um, uh, bleeding knuckles, and my wife comes into the room, and she's got that look on her face that's like, Remind me again why I picked that one to marry. Um, you know, because, because what happened was I, I started to work on this, took the valve apart. I thought probably just needs a, a washer to be flipped over or something like that. The drip became kind of a trickle, and then the trickle became a spray, which hit me in the face. And then that became just a gushing, a gushing waterfall of water pouring into the tub. But worse than that, pouring through the hole in the wall that's like behind the shower thing down into my finished basement. And it just totally got out of, out of control. Now, what did I really learn that day? I really learned that just because you want to do something doesn't mean you actually have the ability to do something, right? I mean, there's this huge gap uh, sometimes between intention and implementation, and I, I needed to respect uh, that gap a little bit more. And here's why it's important. You and I in life start with great ambition. We have big dreams and great desire. I never met uh, a newlywed that didn't say, I want to be a great spouse. I never met a student that didn't say, I want to be an excellent student. I never met a lawyer that didn't say, because of me, we're going to have justice. I never met a writer that didn't say, I'm going to inspire people. But the truth is, we have to admit, that's all just desire. And we don't yet know whether we can cross the capacity gap into 
ability and successful implementation. And so the question tonight as we begin this new series on uh, discipleship is how does Jesus draw us across that capacity gap? Because Jesus is the one who makes the audacious, audacious claim that there is abundant life to be had. He said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so the question is, how do we get from the desire to live the abundant life that Jesus promises with, into the capacity to actually live with that? Well, in the second century A.D., after the first generation of apostles had died, the church found a lot of people who still believed in Jesus. He was at work in their midst, and people were coming to faith. They were coming to know him, and they thought, how do we help people who have no idea who Jesus is or what the church is about come into Jesus' community and mission? And so they began to look at the Great Commission, And it it says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And do you notice that the Apostles' Creed has the same three sections that are reflected there, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This begins to shape. So really what it was, was, it wasn't someone saying, we need a, a standard for doctrinal purity. Really what it was is, we need a grid that helps us equip new believers, to live the abundant life that Jesus is calling them into as well as us. And so we're going to be looking at the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, uh, not from a theological standpoint, but from a practical, lived standpoint these next few weeks. But before we do, I want to invite you to think about the apostles behind the creed, who these first followers of Jesus were, what discipleship meant for them, If we can see how Jesus begins to move them across the capacity gap, I want to suggest that we'll have some idea how he does it today in the 21st century. So would you pull out your Bible? Let's open up to John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. This is after they've crucified him. He's been buried in the tomb, but he's risen now. And some of the women have seen him, but the disciples haven't yet seen him. And so here they are gathered in the upper room, probably where communion had first been shared, and uh, they're frightened. So um, let's let's see, Uh, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Do you see that one paragraph? That's our text. This is, by the way, this is John's version of the Great Commission. These disciples are going to be commissioned by Jesus in this room. So if you're able, let's stand together and uh, read out loud as an act of worship. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. What I think you and I are inclined to miss in this passage, and I want you to notice tonight, is that what Jesus gives his disciples in that room is a disciple's 
promise. He gives them a disciple's promise. What is a disciple's promise? In the shortest words I can think of, it's a promise that you will do. You will do. You will do more than you think you can do. You will do the very things that I have done. You will do. Now, it's easy to miss that, but here it is in the text. He says in verse 21, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus is the eternal word of God we read in the Gospel of John, the very beginning. The word made flesh. He, he came from the Father with a mission to this world. And now Jesus looks at these disciples gathered in this room, locked, shuttered, and terrified as they are, and he says, I'm going to do the same thing with you that the Father has done with me. I'm going to fill you with my love, and I'm going to send you into the world with my mission. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And they're going, wow, we love that idea. We want that so badly. We desire that. That's our intention. But they're looking around the room, and they're seeing what he's seeing, and they're going, there is just no way that's going to ever happen. We can't do that. Jesus says, you will. You will do more than you can imagine. That's a disciple's promise. Now, it's hard for us to see that, but I want you to understand what a disciple meant in first century Judaism. In Greek culture, a disciple just meant a student, a learner, an adherent to a particular philosopher. But in Jewish culture, the word disciple translated the Hebrew word talmid. And and a talmid was a student who was engaged with a rabbi. The rabbi was a teacher, and the Talmud was a student. But the, the, the ground rules, the expectations of that particular uh, a role was that in time, the Talmud would gain the character and the capacity of the rabbi. And in time, the Talmud, who was just a student at the beginning, would end up being a teacher, would be himself a rabbi. So that everything the rabbi did would someday be the things that the students, that the Talmud, that the disciple would do, you see. And so when Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you, he's reaffirming for them that his intention is they would be and they would do what Jesus had been and what Jesus had done. You see that? That's, that's a disciple's promise. Now, he had already told them this earlier in uh, this very same room in uh, John 14, verse 12. He said, the things that I have done, you will do, and greater things also. Now, you and I don't quite get that. But they understood this culturally. Just let me give you one example of that. Do you remember the time that the disciples were in a boat? And it was total chaos. It was night. There was a storm. They were terrified. And through the driving rain, they could make out a figure, a shadowy figure. Not sure who it was, but it's coming towards them. Peter gets the idea, maybe it's Jesus. And here's what Peter says. He shouts out through the storm, Lord, if that is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, really, is that what you would have said? Would you, I would have said, get me the heck out of here. Or get in the boat and start sailing this thing. Or, you know, something like that. Peter says, if that's you, Command me onto the water. Now, why does he say that? 
because he believes that Jesus is his rabbi. And if this shadowy figure is his rabbi, then the shadowy, he will equip Peter to do what the rabbi is doing, which is walking on water. If I see the master walking on the water, then I know immediately the implication for me is someday I too will walk on water. Because he understands the disciples' promise. Now, I want to suggest to you that uh, uh, this relationship between a rabbi and a Talmud is essential to growth and transformation. It was a Sunday, as I told you, when Anne called the plumber, finally. It was the next day. I mean, I knew enough about plumbing to figure out how to turn off water to the whole house. It made dinner hard. Uh, We went to bed sweaty, and we woke up, went showerless to church, and there was a distinct odor in the pew around the Hinman's uh, on that day. Finally, Anne uh, gave up on me and called the plumber. When the plumber arrived, I was still kneeling in the tub uh, with all the nicks and everything, And he came into the room, and I will not soon forget his face. He had a smile on his face. And I'm thinking that smile is a smile of somebody who is aware that that day they're going to make twice their normal income. Right? I mean, wouldn't you smile? And the other reason I think the smile there is, and I get this, is just a projection. He was a really nice, if huge and strapping uh, man. He, um, he was smiling, I think, because as he looked at my puny little frame there bent over empathetically in the tub, he was thinking to himself, I have seen this guy a thousand times a month. I know his life. He's probably a pastor, he's thinking, <laughs> right? <clears throat> and he looks at me very nicely and says, hey, bud, why don't you get out of the tub? You know? <laughs> so I get out of the tub and he steps in and doesn't take it but a moment. He pulls out a little pen light and he flicks it and he looks through the hole there and he goes, yep, yep, yep. And I kid you not, 15 minutes later, that problem was solved. 15 minutes! <laughs> now that guy had some serious capacity. But I want to suggest to you, he didn't wake up that morning with capacity like that. No, I, I think this plumber had been in that room before. A hundred, maybe a thousand times. I mean, not our bathroom, but the bathroom just like it. He'd been there. And I think probably the first time that that plumber was there, he was just like me. And he made the same mistakes. And he got spray in his eyes. And he got blood on his knuckles. And But then he had the smarts to, to call another plumber to come alongside of him and help him. So at some point, he became an apprentice to another plumber. And he was apprentice, and after a while, he became a journeyman, and after a while, he became master plumber so that he could walk into virtually any bathroom, let alone my room, see the chaos, and go, I can fix that with confidence. This is what an apprentice can do. And and we don't use the word disciple these days because it sounds kind of religious. You think a disciple is somebody who does religious things really well, but that's not the concept in its original context. A disciple is just somebody who acquires what the master has. And there are two key elements, there are two core components to being an apprentice. One is experience, and the other is relationship. Think about that, experience and relationship. That's how your life will change if you follow a master. You need both of those things. And I want to suggest also that it's not just 
uh, a spiritual truth, it's built into the fabric of the way we learn things. I, there was an interesting study this past May that came out. It was done by Gallup and Purdue University. You can Google it if you want to read the whole thing, but I just want to uh, encourage you with the executive summary. By the way, if any of you are seniors and are applying to college this fall or parents of seniors, you need to hear this. This is what they say. They say that, that where you go to college, public or private, small or, or large, very selective or not selective, hardly matters at all to your future well-being and work life. Did you catch that? Where you go to college, hardly matters at all. Large or small, public, private, selective, not selective. What matters is, they found, experience and relationship. Listen to this. I'm just reading right out of the executive. This is their top line. This is the most striking thing we found is this. For example, if graduates had a professor who cared about them as a person, that's a relationship, made them excited about learning and encouraged them to pursue their dreams, their odds of being at work more than uh, engaged at work more than doubled, as did their odds of thriving in their well-being. That's relationship. Now here's experience. And if graduates had an internship or job where they were able to apply what they were learning in the classroom, where were actively involved in extracurricular activities and organizations and worked on projects that took a semester or more to complete, their odds of being engaged at work doubled also. Catch this last sentence. Feeling supported, relationship, and having deep learning experiences, experience means everything when it comes to long-term outcomes for college graduates. Whoa. This is how we learn. This is how we grow. This is how we cross the capacity gap. So with that in mind, I, I want to ask you what this would look like for us in the 21st century in relationship to Jesus. And I want to ask three questions. The first one is this. Will I let Jesus into my experience? Don't answer that question too quickly. I did not want the plumber in my bathroom. I really didn't. Why? Because I didn't want to see that smile. You know, my pride, my sense of shame, I knew there was a problem in the bathroom. Oh, I knew. But I wanted to be the one to fix it. And when I saw the way my wife looked at that strapping plumber after his 15 minutes, you, you, know, you, 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 know what I, you know what I'm saying? The admiration in her eyes. I wanted her to look at me that way. Will I let Jesus into my experience? These disciples have locked and bolted the door. They don't want anyone in there. The, 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 the experience that they're in right now is one of fear. It's one of terror. It's one of abandonment. It's, it's one of absolute despair. There they are in this room. But Jesus wants to get in. He comes through the wall somehow. The text says he stood among them. He stood among them in the midst of what they were going through. Now, I, I, don't know, I don't know what you're going through. Some of you have a roommate that's hard to get along with. Uh, maybe somebody here is not in college this semester because they couldn't pay the tuition bills. Some of you don't, haven't worked for 22 months. Some of you are struggling with infertility treatments and you're just exhausted at continuing to try. I don't know what your experience is, but you know what? Jesus knows. He knows the room you're in and he wants to come and let me in. When you let Jesus into your experience, time after time after time, you know what happens? Your capacity begins to grow. Let me just give you one illustration. I have a friend whose bank account uh, two weeks ago was overdrawn. 
uh, Daryl Waddell sitting right here in the front row. So he, told, he gave me permission to put himself on the spot. So he gets a phone call from Money Tree, and they say, Mr. Waddell, uh, did you write a check for $150 at Red Mill Burgers? First, let me just parenthetically say, I love Red Mill Burger. But I cannot imagine spending $150 at Red Mill. So what, what happened? Actually, his house was broken into. He didn't know it at that point yet. But, and some people had stolen the checkbooks, and they were writing checks. And so now Daryl's checking account uh, has insufficient funds. The bank has denied payment, and there's, there's no money there. So, you know, I, I don't know Daryl's finances, but to me that feels like a financial crisis. Okay, he's in a room where there's not enough money. Some of you are in that same room. Now, just imagine for a second, if you're in that room, uh, what it would look like to have Jesus step into your financial anxiety and say, peace, like he says here, peace, my peace. Let me give you my peace. Notice he doesn't say, I want to give you my money, but I want to give you peace even when you don't have money. Now, isn't there something uh, powerful about that that increases your capacity? If you could find real peace in the context of financial want, it will begin to change your relationship to money because the world will tell you that you need money to have peace, but you've learned otherwise. And so experience after experience, you find with time that you become less greedy because you don't have to grab money as much. You become less worried about money. You become more generous, you see. So you're beginning to gain a capacity. It's Jesus' capacity because you're hearing Jesus speak peace in your life in the context of all these experiences. There's another question, secondly, I would ask, and that is, do I trust Jesus enough to let him be my master? Again, don't answer that too quickly. You know, when a plumber arrives at your house or your apartment, you know what they come up in? They come up in a white van, and it's a little bit scary. You know, they're acetylene torches and sawzaws, and they got a lot of tools that are pretty powerful tools, and uh, you don't know what they'll do with your house, with the wall, how much it will cost. You kind of lose a little control. And, and, they, and they come in, and, um, and, and this is the question I think that these disciples are faced with. They're not sure who this Jesus is and whether he would be safe at all in, in the room. And do you notice that Jesus has to tell them peace twice? It's kind of funny. He says, peace be with you. And then there's like no reaction in the text. There's no, there's no reaction. Like nobody even heard him. Nobody moved. All the anxiety is still spiking right there. And he has to say it again. <laughs> I just want to make sure you hear me. Peace be with you. And they're not sure who he is. How did he get in? Who is this guy? Did he come from hell? Did he come from heaven? Is he a ghost? Who is this guy? And maybe you feel the same kind of fear in your life. Well, what would happen if I let Jesus be my master? If I let him come and I, 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 I followed him as his apprentice? I mean, when he came into the room, what would he see? He'd have to see the mess, wouldn't he? What would he say about that? Would he be judgmental? When he came into the room, what changes would he want to make? And would I be comfortable with that? See, all these things. So we have to decide, will I let Jesus in, into my experience? And one of the reasons we don't is because we don't trust him. But watch what Jesus does in verse uh, 20. After he had said this, peace be with you, he showed them his hands and his side. See, he's addressing the question of, can you trust me? He showed them his hands and his side. He says, look, these scars, uh, my hands are nicked. My hands are bleeding. I've so badly wanted to come into your experience, but it's only so that I can draw you into my experience. I have died on the cross for you. I I am God's one and only son, offering myself 
so that you can have eternal life. Yes, you can trust me. I'm your champion. I don't know if any of you have seen Captain America. I watched Captain America last night, uh, you know, Winter Soldier. And uh, Ken Sanu is here, did a great job preaching last week. And if he can talk about X-Men, I can talk about Captain America. You know, I'm going to try not to spoil it, but Captain America is this clean-cut guy with a great heart. And he's very strong. He's been all juiced up. And he's the, you know, he's the hero of, of the movie, of course. But he's got an alter ego. There's another guy who we find out later in the backstory. These two boys were close friends when they were kids. But through the me- movie, they're battling. They're trying to kill each other, right? And uh, in the climactic scene, there's a big spaceship, and it's just being destroyed, and it's going down, and, and they're fighting each other. And Captain America gets the upper hand because his friend is Bucky, right? His friend Bucky is pinned under this huge girder, and uh, Captain America could run away and save himself, but he doesn't. He lifts up the girder. You know how they do that? And, 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 and Bucky comes out, and here's what Captain America says to him. He puts his shield away, and he says, I am not going to fight you. You are my friend. And Bucky doesn't believe that, but I love that. I am not going to fight you. You are my friend. And when Jesus shows them the wounds, he says, I am not going to fight you. You are my friend. I have given my life for you. I am here because I'm going to the Father to ascend. As the creed says, I'm going to stand before the Father in your place so that God can declare peace, shalom, in your life because of my death and my life. And that's the good news of God's grace. Yes, you can trust him to be your master. The final question is, how can I have a relationship with Jesus in my experience today? You're like, George, okay, great. You said it was relationship and experience. I have lots of experience, but Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years. Well, Jesus answers that question as well. In the text, he turns to his disciples and he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. You know what's so interesting about this? The Talmud-Rabbi relationship had the Torah at the center. But here's where Jesus changes the relationship. Because he doesn't put the Torah, God's Word, the instructions, the Bible, God's written word, at, at the center. He puts himself, the living word, at the center. You see that? See, that, that's the shift. And this is where the approach to discipleship, like this home improvement, one, two, three, will, will be a problem for us. And a lot of people think discipleship is about life improvement, one, two, three. Follow the steps, and you, and you, and you get the capacity that Jesus promises. No, no, it's relate to Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit, his abiding presence and power in your life, moment by moment, day by day, through whatever you walk through, whatever kind of experiences, the wonderful ones and the pitiful ones, Jesus is with you speaking peace, literally, spiritually, into your life, if you will let him. I want to close with a a story. Um, Actually, it's a poem, and it's written by Karen Schaefer, who is here tonight worshiping with us. And I don't know when it was. Karen's a few weeks ago. She sent me this email, and she said, George, I've been just going through a horrible time. And she listed family and some church stuff and some health stuff. And it was really, it, was, it would break your heart to, to read the pain that she would. This was her room. This was her experience. She said, but I, I also want to share a poem with you, because in January, I think it was, I went on one of the UPC prayer retreats. And when I was there, we were praying, and I had a sense that the Holy Spirit met me. And 
he gave me this poem. And I don't know exactly how this works, but she wrote this poem, believing the Holy Spirit. It was God's word to her. And she said, as I found myself trapped in this crisis, God reminded me of this poem. And I want to read it to you. And I, yeah, I would even invite you, if you want, just to relax and imagine that your Savior, Jesus Christ, speaks these words to you as an invitation to come and follow him. Uh, you may even want to close your eyes and listen. It's called Divine Abandon. Tumble and cartwheel down the mountain onto the sun-kissed beach, O beloved. Come frolic with me in the waves and be sea-salted with joy. I will launch you into the air and capture you in my strong embrace. You will know my fierce love for you. Be humbled and divinely broken. Glowing and comforted, you will lie down on the warm sand at rest, cradled in perfect peace. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we confess tonight that you are present to us in this room. Now, Jesus, come and stand among us. Through your Holy Spirit, breathe fresh life into our lives. Help us to believe, help us our unbelief, to know that even in the midst of our worries and doubts and fears, you are more than adequate to be our champion. And that you can sit with us in this room as long as we're in this room, and you will walk with us out of this room, and you will walk us into the rooms of other people. Because you have given us a new capacity to give witness to your grace, to share peace with others, and give them this same freedom. So commission us again tonight. We ask this humbly, and we ask this for your glory, not ours. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. For more UPC audio, or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.